and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I'm your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And my movie today, oh, this is a biggie. This is one that I've been planning since pretty much the day I set out to start Staff Picks. We are talking about one of the biggest movies of all time, James Cameron's 1997 epic Titanic. And I am here to convince you that most of the world was wrong and you should not have crapped on this movie for so long because it is amazing and it really has always deserved more love. Uh, my guest today, this is someone I've wanted to have on the show for the longest time. I have known her for like 15 years. Uh, we go back way, we go way back. And she's one of the uh, smartest, most opinionated people I know. And I've always wanted to have her on the show. Let's see, she's a former teacher. She used to do, uh, her syllabus was always based around movies. She'd always work movies into her lessons. And she actually told me this right before the show that in college for undergrad, her capstone course was on the Lord of the Rings movies. So uh, I'm very excited to have her on the show finally. Welcome, Miss Joni Newman. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And hopefully I'm as opinionated and interesting as you have just described me as being. <laughs> well, you know, there's one thing I've wanted to say for about 15 years to have you on a radio show, and I'm very pleased to get to say it now. Hello, Newman. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> so, Titanic. Well, I'm not going to insult my audience's intelligence by pretending they have not seen Titanic. This will be a little different. We are going to talk about just about why this movie is so awesome. We're just going to riff on it. We're going to go into certain topics and stuff. Uh, give me your history on Titanic here. Um, okay. So I, Titanic came out when I was in that like late elementary school, early junior high time frame, And the more I think about it, actually, the more I think about Titanic, the more I realize that it's one of those movies that people remember in the same way they remember like nine 11, everyone of my generation that I've talked to, remembers when they saw it first and what their reaction was to it. And for me, um, my parents didn't want me to see it when I was young uh, for, I think, kind of understandable reasons. But all of my friends saw it. So I begged and begged and begged and begged. And eventually uh, they agreed to let me see it. Okay, two questions there. A, a yeah. how old were you when Titanic came out? <laughs> and B, why did your parents not want you to see Titanic? I'm very curious about the historical drama that was deemed too racy for you. <laughs> well, there were boobies. Wow. <laughs> and I was, let's see if it came out in 90, it came out in 97. Was I 10? Gosh, I would have been 10 then. I thought I was a little bit older than that. In my head, I was older, but no, I guess I would have been 10. So I was probably a little bit too young for it. But all my friends saw it. And eventually it was after it came out on VHS that I was finally able to see it. And I watched it embarrassingly enough while I was at a birthday party and everybody else who had already seen it was off doing something else. And I was holed up in my friend's room, just like watching this movie by myself while everybody else was having fun. So you were the least fun friend at the party. I was always the least fun friend at the party, like easily. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing that has uh, plagued Titanic over the years, at least at the time. It's not so much anymore is that it was considered only for teen girls. Now, oh, sure. Yeah. And this leads me into the question. Did you cry? Did you like break down at the end of Titanic? 
I didn't. I wanted to. Like, I, I, I remember actually getting to the part where the ship hits and you had to actually change out the VHS at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, bathroom break. I'm going to get my, my tissues. Like, I'm ready. And I was so ready to just sob like everybody said they were. And I didn't. I kind of sat there, like, trying to make myself sad. But the whole time I was like, wow, how'd they make that guy hit the propeller without actually killing him? My, like, my tech brain was too interested in the dynamics of how it worked. And the fact that it was totally fake. So, no, I've never cried when I watched Titanic. Okay, now you've told me you're especially emotionless. So that's not that odd for you, right? <laughs> no, that's not that odd for me. It takes a lot for me to get emotional when I watch movies because it's – I'm just too analytical. I'm, I'm analyzing shots and costumes. And truthfully, the only thing that will make me cry is if, like, a little kid needs their mom and dad. I don't know what that is, but that's, that's a total trigger for me, even though I had good parents. So I don't know. Well, you know, there's a scene in this movie where there's little kids drowning and their mom's telling them a bedtime story, and that did not affect you? Well, they had their mom. She was right there. <laughs> but in a couple minutes, she was going to float away. Well, so were they. <laughs> no, how, I'm sorry. Are you a master of, of ocean currents that I'm not aware of? You're aware they're all going to float in the same direction? I, I figured they were going to get pretty close. <laughs> okay. I have to tell my story because I'm I'm – somewhat more emotional than you like movies can really affect me and this is really odd that the guy on the podcast is the one that was wrecked by titanic and the girl is the one who didn't care and was team iceberg <laughs> so so here's my my backstory here is that when titanic came out for people who don't know this was obviously one of the biggest movies in history and it was expected to be a flop are you aware of that were you there remember do you remember that from the time I don't remember that from the time, but I I did a bunch of reading just to kind of remind myself of what was going on when it came out and saw that James Cameron was convinced that it was going to flop. And that, that actually really surprised me because of what it's become. But it makes sense after rewatching it again, because it's got some really, really like significant issues in the middle of all of its awesome. So I can see why he might have looked at the movie and gone, oh, shoot. Okay, here's my recollection. Now, I could be wrong, but this is just remember me as I'm 23 when this movie comes out. And I remember, you know, it had been announced and James Cameron, the guy from the Terminator movies, doing Titanic. And everyone's like, wow, that's weird. That guy doesn't do movies like that. And then it was announced this movie is going to be like $300 million. Like it was the most expensive movie in movie history well before it was even finished. And... It was like the laughing stock of Hollywood. It was like the it was like a like they joke about Waterworld and Ishtar being these huge flops. Titanic was expected to be the biggest flop ever, and that's why it was one of these things that was so surprising it actually turned out to be like a hit. Yeah. I actually read that it ended up costing more than the actual Titanic. The movie if I remember right cost about 200 million and the Titanic itself cost 150. What um now what happened is this movie came out in 97 and I was not going to watch it. I'm like I don't want to watch that. It's supposed to be a flop and I'd heard that it's just teen girls going to see it and that was it cuz they all love Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> that that was that's accurate. Yeah, okay, good. Very good. And did 10-year-old Joni were you a, a on team Leo? Oh gosh. Um I don't think so. I again, I was kind of like oddly emotionless i think i i think i was team leo mainly because my friends were and kind of like how i wanted to cry i wanted to like leo but mainly because i wanted to fit in and i didn't (laughs) so i wasn't i wasn't anti-leo but i don't think i was team leo either i was team gilbert i was team gilbert Blythe. like i was i was i was literary snob i love that your story is surprisingly like the wizard of oz how you're constantly searching for something that you don't have that everybody else has pretty much yeah (laughs) 
pretty much. Yeah. So I, I didn't see Titanic when it first came out. It wasn't marketed to me. I'm too old for it, I think. And what happened is I have an uncle named John. And John is like Mr. Macho conservative Republican guy. And this is the last movie in the world he ever would have seen. And for some reason, I was talking to him, and he's like, oh, I saw, I saw Titanic. It was amazing. And I'm like, you? There's no way you, of all people, would love Titanic. He's like, no, it's great. It's like the greatest movie I've ever seen. And I'm oh, like, wow. wow, okay, well, perhaps I will stop watching Dumb and Dumber, and I'll go watch something with substance <laughs> like Titanic. And so I went to the theater, and I always remember this. It was like the movie had already been out for like six weeks. And I remember there was a line of teenage girls right in front of us, like 14, 15 years old. And they'd all seen it like 10 times already. Oh, no. So, yeah, we're sitting there in the theater and the opening music comes up, the uh, Celine Dion music. And they all start (laughs) crying. It's like three (laughs) seconds into the movie. They're all in full on tears. And I turn to my wife and I'm like, this is going to be rough, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Darn flute. (laughs) Yeah. So that was it. That was my story. And we saw it and I watched it and like. I have never been more wrecked by a movie than I was. I was like the opposite of you. Like I actually had to uh-huh. sit there in the theater and compose myself. And I'm not like full on like sobbing, but I'm like, I can't talk. I'm so wrecked by this movie. And I'm like, that was so amazing. So this is my backstory. The movie that everyone expected to flop. And I even eventually gave it a chance. I'm like, that is so good. That's awesome. So what was it that got you? Was it was it just all the death or was it Kate Winslet? <laughs> like, what was the line? Well, it was it was knowing that you didn't cry when when Jack oh, died. Okay. No, <laughs> no. What got me is and I was just watching it again today. And like, you know, Jack dying is sad. And the scenes of Rose repeatedly going back to Jack at the end when she has a chance for freedom are sad. Sure. But the scene that always gets me and it still does. And I will not feel bad about this or apologize for this. And I, this may not wreck you. But the scene at the very end when they she flashes back to her meeting up with Jack after death and she walks through the the lobby and like everybody in the cast is there and they're applauding for them and it's like it's like a play they're like doing a, a bow at the end for the entire cast yeah that's the scene plus the music it always gets me sure and that's i mean that's they called it they pitched it as Romeo and Juliet on on a ship and that makes sense because that's very much so this idea that they have this tragic love story. And in the end, the I think what sells the movie, at least on the plot, is whether or not you believe that they were right for each other. And if you believe that, that, that they were good for each other and right for each other, then, yeah, I could see how that would be a, a trigger. This, like, finally, they're, they can just breathe. They can be together. So, so you're saying there's an argument to be made that they weren't right for each other. Well, it was a 48-hour romance, so, you know, I think Elsa might have something to say about it, but... (laughs) And this is something we'll get into on this podcast. Like I said, we're not going to walk through the plot of this movie. We're going to point out the strengths, and we're going to point out the flaws, because I know, Joni, you've said there are several flaws in this movie. Oh, we yeah, the script is... the script is horrible. (laughs) Okay, we'll we'll save that, and there's a special place in hell for Fabrizio, maybe the worst (laughs) character ever. Worst character ever. Wow, you really don't like Fabrizio. Yeah, I love the Italian guy whose entire movie is basically him him walking around saying, Hey, pasta linguini. Yeah, that's in, in those voices. Is he actually Italian, the guy that played him? Or is he just totally faking? Oh, I sure hope so. I sure hope he's not uh, appropriating my culture. Now I'm even more mad at him. Yeah. <laughs> is he doing like, um, it was, oh, what's his name? In Prince Caspian, who got the voice of Prince Caspian by saying, the line from Princess Bride, 
about Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. Like, that's how he got this fake Spanish accent. Well, uh, screw you, Fabrizio. We're coming. We're taking you down tonight. He's from California. Oh, no, he's from Austria. Uh, wait, Fabrizio's from Austria? He is from Austria. Oh. So he's like the second worst Austrian after Hitler. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. That's where we're going on staff picks, Joni. That's where we're going. Cool. That makes sense. I can buy that. Yeah. So anyway, to fill people in on history a little bit, yeah, Titanic was expected to be this massive, massive flop. It ended up not being a flop, and people saw it over and over and over. It was became the biggest grossing movie in history, and it is still number two. Titanic is still number two, correct? I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. Hi there, this is your good friend Mario, and I just am inserting this little note in the podcast to point out that I am aware that Titanic is no longer the number two movie of all time. We recorded this episode a couple months ago. Since then, Titanic has been replaced by some superhero movie. I don't know, whatever. But anyway, I just wanted to point out I am aware of that. We just recorded this a while ago. Thank you. James Cameron has the number one and two spots, and I'm, I'm going to... Well, we'll talk about this later, Joni, but I'm aware you have not seen Mr. Cameron's other mega epic, correct? He wrote another mega epic? <laughs> well, you know the number one movie of all time. You are aware <laughs> of what that is. It's not The Princess Bride here. It is not. I, I've ridden the ride in Disney World, but no, I have not, I have not seen Avatar. <laughs> you should see Avatar because that's a whole different podcast, but we'll, we'll skip that for now. I've I've been told that if I've seen Pocahontas and Ferngully that I don't need to see Avatar. You need better friends. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to bash him too, Matt, but you have horrible people that give you advice. Yeah, but in fairness, I do ditch them to watch movies at their own birthday parties. So. <laughs> okay, so yeah, Titanic, huge hit. Um, people saw it over and over and over. The soundtrack was all over the place. And then it went to the Oscars. It won Best Picture. And... To this day, that's like the last Oscars I really cared about because that was like a huge deal. Do you, did you watch the ceremony that year? I don't remember, actually, if I watched the ceremony that year. But I do remember it being all over about how many Academy Awards it won. Yeah. It still, it still did. It, did it get more than Return of the King? Uh, I'm not sure. We will have to match. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring in the, the crack staff picks research team and we'll research that. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, Titanic won Best Picture. And then the backlash started, and that's why we're doing the podcast today, because for the next 15 years, all you heard was, that was the worst Best Picture winner ever. It was like a sham. A sham. It never should have won. Nobody would admit that they liked Titanic. And that's why we're here doing this podcast today, because it never should have faced that backlash phase. Yeah, I don't think so. I think, I think the best comparison I can make is Frozen. Because both of them have the unfortunate distinction of having a really, really good earworm of a major song mm -hmm. that when it gets overplayed, then makes people hate the movie that it came from. Because both Let It Go and My Heart Will Go On just took on a life of their own. And when you hear that song over and over and over and over and over again, you just get sick of it. And I think that might have been a little bit what happened with Titanic is people just got overexposed. Yeah. I would say it had a double whammy. It had that for sure. That that was absolutely a factor. People got so sick of that song. But it's, a lot of it's people just don't like James Cameron. 
Sure. And what's funny is that almost everything I'm saying for Titanic also applies to Avatar, which is currently the number one movie of all time. People have seen it tons and tons of times. It's one of these movies that when they re-released it in the theater, I made sure my kids saw it just to know they had that experience. Mm. But to this day, that movie gets no respect, including from my co-host. I don't know what you're talking about, Mario. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, I'm going to do an Avatar <laughs> podcast, and we can just basically cut and paste everything we're saying here. But there's <laughs> there's always been this backlash against James Cameron. Like, people just don't like him. They don't like success. Meanwhile, he's got these top two movies of all time that are both amazing. So, I don't know. How, what do you think of James Cameron? Do you know much about him? Yeah, I actually have a lot of respect for James Cameron. I mean, he he does – he's very overambitious, which can, which can bother people. But I have a lot of respect for the insane amount of detail and research that he went to to make Titanic. I don't know as much, obviously, because I'm an idiot about Avatar, but I do know a lot about what kind of research and the level of intense study that he did to make sure that Titanic went off accurately. And I respect that. That's that's extremely admirable that he went in not just wanting to make this movie, but also build something historically accurate yeah and that's that's the same thing that made me eventually fall in love with the movie I, I mean i liked it the first time i saw it i'm like that is a really powerful movie but then all the documentaries and stuff came out that talked about all the level of detail he put into the ship like right down to the rivets mm-hmm. and like the little railing and everything was the, exactly the same and like some of my favorite shots in the movie are the ones where they transition from underwater actual footage to his titanic and they just dissolve and it's so cool yeah, they actually they even had these camps for their extras where when they were backstage kind of waiting to go on, they would teach them proper etiquette from the early 1900s and make sure that they knew how to eat and how to sit and how to walk and all those things that are just intense amounts of training to make sure that what they were doing was as accurate and authentic as they could make it. And there's such a great X factor that goes into a movie when you do that, that gives it that untouchable just je ne sais quoi so to speak if we want to be super highfalutin movie that makes it just so much better even though you can't quite put your finger on what it is and i think a lot of that comes in with titanic too because there are some obvious visual or like talking flaws i guess that come out of it but <laughs> what you're not talking about the jack and rose stuff are you oh i'm definitely talking about the jack and rose stuff <laughs> Like there, there are some embarrassing kind of ridiculous lines of dialogue and I've already mentioned that. So it's, it's obviously a sticking point for me, but, but when you put that aside, there's something about that movie that you just can't stop watching because it's so damn beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Beauty is the one word that I always use to describe it. And, and I always describe it this way is that like, this is a three hour movie and I'm not, I don't have a really long attention span. I don't really do well in three hour movies. I will always remember how fast the second half of Titanic goes. Oh, yeah. I remember the movie ended the first time. I'm like, there's no way that was three hours. Because, like, the last, the minute they get to about halfway through the movie, it just zooms by. And it's like you're so engrossed in it. Although, I want to come back to something you just said. You said the historical accuracy and stuff. Mm-hmm. I will let people in. You do, you're an actress. You do a lot of period stuff and dialects and research and history. Like, what is some of the stuff that they did correctly in this movie that jumps out at you? Um, well, aside from the things that we talked about with the ship in terms of the the actual construction of it, the materials that were used, they did actually, one fun fact is they did actually have to make the grand staircase bigger 
uh, proportionally because people now are taller than they were in 1912, which I think is kind of funny. Wow. Um, yeah. So they had to make it proportionally larger. Otherwise it would have looked weird. Um, but a lot of the, a lot of the things that the characters say, how they bring in my fa- actually my favorite thing that they did aside from the, the ship itself is the costuming. The costuming is so brilliant in the way that it tells a story while also being historically accurate. And that's why costuming is so tricky to get right. Um, when you see Rose for the first time, she's in that gorgeous blue and, or sorry, I guess it's purple, like purple and white striped dress that just chains her in. It's very stiff. It's very formal. There are belts and cuffs and collars. And as the movie goes forward, you see the outfits that she wears go from being very form fitting and restrictive in how much movement she can have to being a little bit looser, to being a little bit more flowy as she kind of opens up. And I've always really admired that piece that they were able to stick within historical accuracy while still telling a story. Yeah, that's uh, obviously not something I caught. I, d- I never realized that. So they, they soften up her outfit as the movie goes along and kind of she tones down. Oh, yeah. Like you can see she starts in these very tight. Um, she's got these coats on like they're even just thicker, the thicker fabric. And as it goes forward, they give her things that are a little more flowy, a little more romantic, a little bit easier to walk in because the 19 um, the early 1900s had clothes that were very tight and you have corsets and gloves and hats and all of these things that were meant to keep women still. Um, and as the movie goes forward, she gets outfits that flow a little bit more. Um, of course, that awesome dress that she drowns in or almost drowns in, you know, all of those things that are just it, it loosens up her character and makes her a little bit freer. It's great. Now, what about Jack's clothes? Are his historically accurate to the 1900 street urchin? Well, minus the hair. <laughs> what? So they didn't have styled hair back then? Well, they did, but his, I don't know, it's the same, his hair has the same issue a little bit that Judy Garland's does in Meet Me in St. Louis, where it's kind of appropriate to the time period, but also definitely reflective of the era in which the movie was made, not in which the movie is set. So like Judy Garland has those awesome 1950s bangs um, or 1940s bangs, whatever, whatever, era, like when was Night Meet Me in St. Louis made? Now I feel like an idiot. I don't even know. I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that. Have you not seen Mimi and St. Louis? Have you not seen Avatar? Okay, I think one of us. I think one of us has the higher ground here. <laughs> damn it! What are you, uh, Anakin? No, who, who has the high? Obi Wan. <laughs> Let me start that I over. Obi Wan. Yeah. Damn it! What are you, Obi Wan? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. No, I have not seen Meet Me in St. Louis. I'm sorry. I was busy watching Deathstalker Two: Duel of the Titans. <laughs> okay, well, watch Mimi and St. Louis because it's like okay, 1944. I knew it. I didn't know it, but whatever. It was made in 1944, so she's got this this hair that's that's kind of accurate to the time period but not totally and that's kind of the same thing you see with leo and and titanic his hair isn't a hundred percent totally accurate but truthfully it's i mean it's it's a pretty minor nitpick like it works and his costumes are totally appropriate as well and also that scene where molly brown gives him that that suit is not even that culturally or time period inappropriate either because molly brown actually did have a son that was in his early 20s at the time the titanic sank wow i didn't know that so it's not yeah so it's not totally implausible that she would have brought back a suit from europe for a kid wow very interesting now just one thing that you said that struck me is that uh that sets had to be made bigger because the the actors were bigger now yeah how does that work with leo who looks like he's about 10 years old like did he look six because (laughs) the stairway was bigger now 
I I think that must have been his issue because <laughs> he does. He looks so little. But a lot of that is the camera work. Um, I think James Cameron is a brilliant cinematographer and they do a lot to make him look very, very small with those high angles that they use on him in that scene, huh. especially when he's waiting for her. Anytime you get that high angle on somebody, they just look puny. Um, if you if you want them to look taller, you're going to shoot them from a lower angle and they sit on him like a bird the entire time just to make him look little and stupid. And it works because he does look little and stupid. So you're already pointing out a couple of little subtle things that James Cameron did that people might not have noticed that made this movie more effective. Totally. And that's what I think makes me respect Titanic just a little bit more than maybe the average current person. Um, a lot of that is because when when a movie is able to evoke emotion in you, it's not just reliant on the script or the plot. There are so many things that are subtly impacting your brain and the way that you respond to things and camera angles, costuming, um, sets, music, all of that has a really big factor in how you respond to a movie um, and the story that's being told. So even though the dialogue might not be brilliant and even though the love story might be rushed or whatever, it's telling a story in a potent way. So you can overlook a lot of those flaws and enjoy it for what it is and not gripe too much about what it could be or what it isn't. Yeah, see, that's you described it much better than I could have. I'm just going to let you go because you're actually a better speaker than me. <laughs> like, I was going to say, so many people, they they harp on the little things in this movie, like the dialogue. Like, the dialogue is yeah. kind of stilted, and even you and I would fully admit that. But, like, to, oh, me, yeah. to me, that's a minor thing. I don't really consider that the bigger picture in this movie. Because I'm thinking of all of this, just the overarching, you know, the vision that James Cameron had and all the love he put yeah. into it and the care and the music. And, like, I can look past the dialogue, but that's always been the main thing in this movie, that people can harp on that and they won't look past it. They just think that part's terrible. Yeah, there's there are so many little nods to what we actually do know about the Titanic that I think are really, really clever and really, really wonderful. Um, there's, there's the scene um, where you see the little kid throwing the top, for example, which is straight out of pictures of actual Titanic passengers. Mm -hmm. um, loads of, of firsthand accounts were taken into, into play when it came to um, like the the old couple that dies on the bed, and you know all of those things are are meant to represent actual events, and that authenticity, that honor to those people that died, uh, I think is really really special, and it shows that whatever you can say about Titanic, it was definitely a labor of love. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something I don't think a lot of people are aware of. That that top scene in particular. That blew my mind when I heard that for the first time that, yeah, James Cameron went looking for actual pictures that existed from the Titanic, and he just threw in little background scenes of the people recreating those just, just as a detail that the Titanic historians would catch. And what's great about it is that it's not um, – I, I would actually – I'll pull up Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone here because one of the things that drives me nuts about that movie compared to some of the later ones is that Chris Columbus, as an American – uh, I think does a lot of things where he kind of zooms in the camera on this magic that's happening. It's, hey, like, hey, look, magic. Uh, whereas when you get into the later films, the magic is just kind of happening because it's part of the world. Mm -hmm. And James Cameron did that, too, in in this movie, where there are a lot of things that are historically accurate that are happening in the in the atmosphere. But instead of drawing his camera to it and being like, hey, look, look what I just did. This is really cool. He just lets it happen. And if you notice it, that's great. And if not, it's giving that authentic atmosphere where it feels right. Because it is. It's what happened. The one, Yeah, that's the thing that I don't think Cameron gets credit for, that he he assumes you know this story better than you probably do. Yeah. So there's a lot of little details in it that you catch on repeat viewings, which I've always appreciated. Like, 
Titanic's one of those movies I could pop in any time and I'll watch it. It's always rewatchable. Oh, yeah. Although let's okay, let's let's go into some of the characters here, because this is something I don't think it's mentioned when people talk about Titanic enough is that there's the Jack and the Rose stuff. There's the sinking. There's you know, all the overarching stuff with the heart of the ocean and the old lady. But let's talk about these side characters, because I think this movie is chock full of fantastic side characters. And they're the ones that really make it work as well as it does. Oh, easily. So, OK, give me a name. Pick out your favorite. Who's your favorite side character in this movie that you want to talk about? Oh, Kathy Bates. She is brilliant as Molly Brown. I love her. And now, was that the first iteration of her playing Joe on The Office? <laughs> Actually, when I rewatched this movie for uh, to kind of prepare for the podcast, I was watching it with a friend, and he looked over at me, and he said, I just want at some point in this movie for her to use the line of Joe in The Office talking about her dogs biting people's crotches at some point. And I thought, you know, that would not be out of character for Molly Brown. It would work. So if they ever do a re-release of Titanic, we've got to get some ADR of Kathy Bates doing <laughs> doing that line. Well, I like your friend. He thinks like I do. You have good. Okay, I, I changed my mind. You have good friends. I have. I have one good friend. One good friend. All right. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, yeah. Kathy Bates, one of these people who's really good in everything, and she steals a lot of the lines in this movie. Although I will fully throw myself on your mercy of the knowledge of history here. Is the Molly Brown presented in this movie historically accurate? Do you know? Oh, very. In fact, they um, they even pull out a story um, actually made famous by the musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown. But at the dinner table, when when Jack is actually eating in that big fancy meal, uh, you hear just in the background a piece of a story where she actually hid money in the stove and then lit it on fire kind of on accident. And they're all laughing about it because she's this new money person. And that actually happened in history. That's that's a real story. And they just kind of throw it in there. Uh, so she's yeah, she's portrayed very accurately. Obviously, she did not actually meet somebody named Jack Dawson on the ship, as far as we know. Uh, so that piece is, is a little manipulated. Um, but but the way that she's presented her demeanor, her outfits, all very accurate to the best of our knowledge of what she was like. Now, OK, now I have one beef with the Molly Brown portrayal. And again, I think, yeah, I, I agree. She's really good in this and she steals almost every scene she's in. But there's one scene where they're sitting around the dinner table talking about Freud and Rose starts talking about Ismay's and do you know, do you know Dr. Freud and his preoccupation with male size? And like Molly Brown laughs knowingly. And would Molly Brown really know Dr. Freud's theories? I don't know if she's, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure how familiar she was with Dr. Freud. I caught you off guard. I got one historical question past Joni. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Although I'll come back at you with one more that, uh, the guy who plays Mr. Ismay, who is brilliant as well, if we want to talk about that, he actually improvised the line that came later about, who is this Mr. Freud? Is he a passenger? <laughs> Such a great random improv. <laughs> now, some other side characters I got to point out. Like, I like Cal Hockley. I know a lot of people don't like Cal, but I, I think we were, we were talking about this. You had a little note, spreadsheet of notes before, and you said how Billy Zane was a good enough actor that he could actually sell some of Hockley's lines and make them work. For the most part, yeah. I actually think Cal might have some of the worst lines in the entire film, um, not least of which because he's given the, you know, God cannot sink the ship line that is so <laughs> famous and not really attributed to more or less anybody as far as I know, although it might have been um, at one point. I don't know. Uh, but the, the the way he delivers his lines for the most part is is pretty good, <laughs> even though there there actually did come a point about halfway through where I thought, 
he looks a lot like Brendan Fraser in The Mummy, <laughs> only he's taking himself way too seriously. But then he's playing a villain and Rick O'Connell in The Mummy movies is is a doofus. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the Yeah, I love that. Uh, like every single line Cal has in the movie just makes him evil and slimy, like right down to. Picasso, never heard of him. It won't amount to a thing. <laughs> like he's just a, yeah. <laughs> they might as well just call the character Joe Evil. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Okay, I got to talk about a, another little minor villain here who actually has a lot of depth to her, and I'm talking about Rose's mother. Oh yeah, she's great. I am a big fan of Ruth Dewitt Bucator. I believe that, or she just she just Ruth Dewitt. I kind of forget. I think no, I think she's got the Bucator on there too. Oh yeah, but she's a fantastic villain, and I, she's one of these people you, who never gets enough credit. Nobody ever mentions her. Not only is she fantastically sleazy and slimy, basically whoring out her daughter for this guy, but she actually has some depth to her character. Yeah. And this is the scene that I always forget is in this movie where she basically explains to Rose, "We need this. We have no money." What does she say? Like a woman's choices are harder in life, or something like that. Yeah, a woman's choices are never easy, but we're women. Like that's what we do. <laughs> Suck it up, Buttercup. Yeah, a lot of commentary on women and what they must do in this in this in movie. But like, what do you think? You like Ruth? Are you a fan of Ruth as a villain? I am, and that that scene. Um, I was reading again. This is a lot of this comes from IMDb, so it's as true as IMDb is. But apparently, the the original scripting of that scene had Rose actually doing up Ruth's corset instead of the other way around, and I like it so much better the way they filmed it because the symbolism of a mother strapping her daughter into this restrictive thing and saying, Nope, this is your life and I'm going to tie you into it. Um, but the sympathy that comes afterwards where she's trapped too, because she doesn't want to be destitute. There's, I mean, what is she supposed to do? She has no money and she's a woman in 1912. You don't get money on your own in, as a woman in 1912. And so it gave just a little bit of depth, to Rose's situation that it desperately needed because a lot of the rest of the story doesn't quite justify some of the things she's doing until that moment. Yeah, no, I, that, well, very well said. Like you said, the women in 1912 didn't have many options as we learned in the movie that women mostly just stood on boats and looked at propellers, right? Sure. And, you know, <laughs> kissed strange men before they committed suicide or after, you know, whatever <laughs> or attempted. All right. So let's go to another side character. And I will say, when I first saw the movie, the the death that affected me the most, and it was not Jack. Spoiler, Jack dies. Sorry. No way. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh, shoot. Don't mean to ruin this for 10-year-old Joni, who's not going to cry now. Oh, no. No, I think she's, she's going to really be upset now. <laughs> Someone should have told her. <laughs> the one who really got me was Thomas Andrews, the shipbuilder. He's the one I always think is the, the heart of this movie, like... He is so eager and earnest and proud of his boat, and he's the first one to realize it's going to sink. And you can just see it in his eyes. He knows he's now responsible for, you know, thousands of deaths or however many people died. And he's the one that always stood out to me as the unsung hero in this movie. Yeah, and Victor Garber is so charming. He's just, it's, how do you not like Victor Garber? He's such a nice guy. <laughs> At least on film. I have no idea if he's a nice guy in real life, but he's, <laughs> but he's a nice guy here. Yeah, that's how he tricks you, Joni. Watch out. Oh, crumb. <laughs> Okay, we've gone over the side characters here, uh, although we kind of skipped Fabrizio. We'll just leave him. Again, the walking Italian stereotype who's <laughs> horrible <laughs> and and rightfully so gets crushed by a smokestack at the end, so I'm cool with that. But let's, <laughs> let's talk about some of the uh, responses to this movie when it came out because, again, I'm not kidding. This movie was absolutely everybody wanted it to fail. It didn't fail. And then 
right after you know it succeeded so well, then the backlash happened and the critics really came down on it. I know you have researched this a little bit, right? You've read some of these critic comments? Yeah, I actually went through Rotten Tomatoes and looked at probably 300 different little blips. I didn't read all the articles. I was just reading the, the poll lines. Um, and some of them are from the re-release of the film when it came out, I believe on Blu-ray. Um, others were from when it originally came out. But I thought some of the little poll lines were really, really intriguing to see both how the movie has stood up and how it was received originally. Some of them are really harsh. For example, this is from Critics Inc. Um, slash America Online. If when you see this film, you believe it's credible, God bless you and your unfortunate offspring with their damaged gene pool. Ouch. That's so harsh. I mean, that's the kind of backlash this movie faced. And I know there's some other ones. You have some other good ones? Oh, yeah. What really brings on the tears is Cameron's insistence that writing this kind of movie is within his abilities. That's the L.A. Times. <laughs> All right, let's go for the trifecta. Got any other good ones? Um. Oh, here's another good one. So Jack and Rose actually caused the Titanic to hit the iceberg. Watch closely. Oh, that's great. That's actually in my notes. I caught that, too. That's uh, one of my favorite things to point out in this movie. So Jack and Rose, at the end of the movie, they're getting chased by the bad guy. They go down in the hold, and they get in the car, and they make love, perhaps. We don't. We think would they make love. And then The handprint would suggest so. The handprint would suggest so. And then Rose says, you know, when we get there, I'm getting off with you, Jack. And I'm thinking, I think she just did that in the car. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but they go up and then on the top deck and when they come out, they, they come bursting through the door. The light, the watchman is distracted by them. He turns and looks at them and that's why he misses the iceberg. So that criticism actually does hold water. Jack and Rose caused the boat to sink. Yeah. The funny thing is, apparently, if they had kissed a little bit longer and distracted the guards a little bit more, historians say that if the Titanic had hit the iceberg head on, it would have been fine. So really the problem here is with Jack's stamina. Exactly. If if they had if they had just kissed a little bit longer, wow. then the ship would have made it to New York uh a couple days late, damaged, but afloat. So Jack Dawson is the real villain here. That is why he does not fit on the board at the end. He's too heavy and villains are heavy. <laughs> All right, we we will get to the board scene. I'm dying to know your thoughts. I know Joni has thoughts on things, right? You've told me this. I, I do. That is, I should get a t-shirt that says, I have thoughts. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go through a couple topics here. Topic number one, the heart of the ocean subplot. Do you like the heart of the ocean subplot? Do you buy it? Do you, do you have thoughts about the heart of the ocean? I think it works actually visually. I love the idea of her being literally weighted down by this rock, uh, this chain, so to speak of, of her responsibility as this woman. Uh, I think that visually works for me mm -hmm. in her relationship with Cal. I think the idea of this entire crew going down and searching the Titanic for this lost necklace is a little weird maybe, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I have major thoughts on that other than that. I think it makes a good plot device in terms of her being chained in. Okay. Well, to be fair to Bill Paxton, he said it's like worth $56 million or something. How much would it cost to make a dive like that though? <laughs> okay. That's, I mean, it's a good point. I had not thought of the logistics here. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know a lot about deep sea diving into old shipwrecks, but I'm quite curious to see what the payout would be 
given how many dives they've tried to make to find this necklace. Yeah, because you know this wasn't their first. Like, I don't think Brock Lovett is like a master diver here. No. All right, so what do you think of her tossing the heart of the ocean into the end, into the ocean at the end? This is a very controversial thing. I remember even at the time, I kind of divided people. Like, is she selfish? She could have given that necklace to her daughter. Her daughter, like, works, like, runs a pottery business or something. Like, you think her daughter could have used that money over the years? But no, she was hanging on to it. Like, what do you think of the old woman's refusal to cash in on the diamond at the end? <laughs> I, I think, again, like, this works kind of as a literary device. In, in, you know, if you look at the necklace, like, the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg and the Great Gatsby or something, then then that works. This idea of her officially getting rid of the necklace is kind of, you know, officially getting rid of her past. But what I think is a little bit weird, even if you look at it from that angle, is that based on all the pictures of her on the in her cabin where she's riding the horse and with her family and whatever else, it, it looks like she's already kind of moved past it. Mm-hmm. So it seems a little bit weird that this is the point where she would find that liberation. Uh, she might as well cash in. So I'm, I might be on the side of the people who think she should cash in on that one. All right. I'll give a little fun fact for people that most people think the heart of the ocean was dropped into the bottom of the, the what are we, the Atlantic at the end of the movie. But the fun fact is that Britney Spears' boyfriend actually went down and got it and brought it back up in the Oops, I Did It Again video. Oh. So Britney Spears now owns the, the uh, heart of the ocean. Lucky girl. Did you know that? Have you? Are you familiar with the video? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. See, I set you up. You're getting all literary and highfalutin. I'm going to set you up with a Britney Spears question. Britney, before you go, there's something I want you to have. Oh, it's beautiful. But wait a minute. Isn't this? Yeah, yes it is. But I thought the old lady dropped it into the ocean in the end. Well, baby, I went down and got it for you. Oh, you shouldn't have. The funny thing is, I, again, watched that music video because I was trying to fit in with my peers. <laughs> <laughs> I have no love lost on Britney Spears either. Okay, so the Heart of the Ocean subplot, okay, there, that's one of them. Uh, the second one is the iconic scenes in Titanic. And there's two of them, that, I mean, aside from all the sinking, we'll save that for the end, but the one where Jack is the king of the world standing up on the bow of the ship, mm -hmm. and the one where Rose is flying and Jack's behind her. Uh -huh. You pro or con? Pro or con on those scenes? <laughs> well, the King of the World one, that was improvised, which I think is kind of cool. Like, you gotta hand it over to Leo for that one, because he, it's an improvised line, and he throws himself into it. Um, without it, I wouldn't get one of my favorite scenes in The Office. So, I think that in mind, I'm pro King of the World. Okay, you know, what I have to say about that one is that everyone remembers that as Jack saying, I'm King of the World. What they don't remember is that Fabrizio is right next to him. So Fabrizio is part of one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. People tend to forget that. And he's holding a breadstick and eating a meatball. Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball. <gasps> wow. <laughs> Another fun fact. <laughs> when Cameron goes for the stereotypes, he goes all the way. Yeah, good for him. He's dedicated. Yeah, so I'm the I'm flying scene. I think that one's cheesy as hell. <laughs> yeah. See, every teen girl in the world melted at that scene. It's so romantic, and then they kiss, and it's so beautiful. And 10-year-old non-crying Joni here thought it was terrible because she wanted more costume design. But Well, and actually, I really liked the costume she was wearing in that scene. So I was like, why are you close in on their faces? I want to see more of the dress. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a perfect answer. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the best dress in the movie. I want to see more of it. So Joni is thumbs up on the Fabrizio scene and thumbs down on the Rose scene. Which is funny because I actually prefer Kate Winslet to Leonardo DiCaprio any day of the week. I actually think Kate Winslet manages to sell Rose in ways that are really, really great. Even though she has some of the worst dialogue in the movie, I think she dedicates pretty well. Well, I've read somewhere that both of them were not happy with their performances, right? Is that true? That is true, yeah. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio described himself as being a little punk, if I remember right, and or a young punk, something like that. And Kate Winslet thought that her American accent was dreadful and hates My Heart Will Go On. <laughs> oh, good. See, this is the kind of stuff that ruins people's childhoods when you find out the beloved stars of Titanic both hate the movie. But they, but they have this great friendship that came out of it, which is kind of funny. Also, my other favorite story about the two of them while they were filming Titanic, aside, well, actually, no, there's two, because she flashed him when they first started filming the movie, because the first scene they filmed together was the was the sketching scene. Wow. I, I have to imagine her mom would have had a problem with that, Ruth. <laughs> yeah, she definitely would have had a problem with that. I don't know about Mrs. Winslet, but Miss, <laughs> Mrs. Bucator definitely didn't like that one. <laughs> so, okay, so let's talk about that sketching scene. Now, this is one you said your parents did not want you to watch this movie. And uh, no, this would probably be the scene that did that. So where do you stand on the draw me like one of your French girls scene? I actually have a picture of my cat posed exactly like Kate Winslet in that scene. So for that joke alone, I think it's great. <laughs> um, and as far as like, if you're looking at it from a plot progression, uh, I think it works because, again, she's trying to be rebellious. I don't know. The only thing about it that I think is a little bit um, maybe unearned is that it happens, again, just on this 48-hour timeline between when they meet and when the ship sinks. And and I wonder if if she would have been that rebellious, given how restricted and honed in these kids were in the 1900s. I, I wonder if she would have given in that fast. But it works, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's, I, I don't know. I think it's a little bit unnecessary personally, but it kind of works. Well, that was one of the things I remember my mom had a problem with this movie. She's like, you know, I really like Titanic and everything's really good, but I don't buy that Rose would be that much of that show that much defiance to societal norms and stuff. And in particular, she pointed out the scene where Rose smokes at the dinner table. She's like, there's no way a girl would have done that in high society in 1912, like right flaunting it in front of everybody's face. Yeah. She's like, I don't care how defiant Rose is. That scene right there probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, there there were so many restrictions. I mean, all you have to do is watch an episode of Downton Abbey and you get a little hint of what it was like. Um, but, you know, I, in fact, I've been rewatching it because I am getting ready for the movie to come out. And there's there's an episode of Downton Abbey where there is literal like just upheaval because somebody doesn't have the right tie for dinner. Um, and that's the kind of 1912 society that you're living in. You come in white tie instead of black tie or black tie instead of white tie. And it's this huge problem. And I, I have a hard time imagining that Ruth Bucator would not have had just intense restrictions on Rose if she had ever smoked in front of her. Not that Rose wouldn't have fought back, but I, I think I agree with your mom. I think that it was a little bit grasping, a little bit too fast for her to get naked in front of him after, you know, 50 hours or whatever it was. Yeah, one day. It's basically a Tinder date. Oh, gosh. This is why I don't do online dating. <laughs> because you don't want to end up the nude being sketched by some guy in a boat? No, I'd prefer it to be on land. 
yeah, I as a comedy writer, I have to say I love the drawing scene. Not so much that you know I like the nudity in it, but I love. Anytime you see somebody in a reclining pose and it becomes a meme, draw me like one of your French girls. It's one of the all-time great comedy meme references. So, oh man, I appreciate that that you did that with your cat. So well done, Joni. Oh, and she she even had it, well, and I didn't even pose her that way. I just looked up and she had a blue collar on, and it was it was like right in the middle of her little white furry chest, just like the heart of the ocean. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> is your cat trying to seduce you? Is that what's going on? She's trying to seduce food at all times. At all times. Okay, so we've gone over most of the major uh, plot points. Um, I want to talk about the last hour and a half of the movie, The Sinking. Is there anything else you want to go over? Characters, themes, plots, costumes, avatar from the first part of the movie? (laughs) I have so much more to say about avatar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you will. Wait until you see it. It'll change your mind, man. Yeah, I'll come back and guest host avatar. Okay, so nothing else before we dive into the... That's a horrible choice of words to use, dive. Uh, before we go into the sinking of the boat. Um, I think there's there's one more thing that I found on IMDb that I thought was so ridiculous that I just I have to bring it up. Okay. Because I love, I love when I watch movies, I love looking at the IMDb trivia. I'm just kind of that person. I'm a, I'm a little sponge for facts and random things. And IMDb trivia has this ridiculous thing that says, Though not based on Disney's Beauty and the Beast, Rose and Jack are similar to Belle and the Beast, as both are primary protagonists who fall in love with each other, while Cal, like Gaston, is the main villain and serves as a love rival. <laughs> that is a fun fact. Thank you, IMDb. <laughs> wow. So Titanic is like every movie, basically. There is there is a, a, a metaphor that I used to use with my students no, it was a simile uh, that it was John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. Like, okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> so, Titanic in a nutshell. Or every movie in a nutshell, basically. Pretty much. Two people fall in love and there's a villain. Thanks, IMDb. Yeah, I've seen that movie. Yeah, it's, 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 like, it's like Avatar. It's basically like every movie just on a different planet. There's people fall in love and do stuff. Yep. Okay, so here we go to the last half. Of this movie, and again, I cannot reiterate how fast the second half of Titanic goes. And like I said, I can, I still cannot believe this is a three-hour movie. I was watching it today, and I'm like, oh my god, it just flies. It's like the minute Rose decides to go with Jack, and she's going to make love with him within 48 hours of meeting him, and then <laughs> go to Santa Monica with him, then all hell breaks loose. Okay, let's talk about the sinking here. Um... I don't even know what to say, how to start this aspect of the podcast. Any thoughts? Does Joni have thoughts on the sinking? <laughs> I think you're totally right. It goes so much faster. Um, I noticed that as I was kind of rewatching it. And as you do when you've seen a movie many times, you kind of are doing other things kind of in and out. But as soon as that ship starts to sink, it really is hard to look away because it's it's very gripping as you watch all of these stories kind of come together. Um, these real people that are facing the unthinkable. It's pretty it's pretty well done. I have to point out I showed this movie to my kids when they were really young. Not unlike your parents, I thought they were cool with the new drawing scene apparently. <laughs> but there's a scene in the sinking where the boat goes totally vertical at one point and people start falling down and they start hitting the 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 masts like by like a pinball game. They start bouncing off these things. Yeah. My kids thought that was so funny. They actually thought this was a comedy the first time they saw it. Oh my gosh. So they may be even more heartless than you. They were not moved. They were laughing. Yeah, I was not laughing. (laughs) 
Um, I was I was thinking, how did they do that? <laughs> well, it's okay. We had my kids in therapy for a while, so they're good now. But uh, well, that's good. Yeah, like you said, we wrap up the entire everybody's character arc, everybody's story arc. There's some wonderful scenes where where uh, Rose stands up to her mother, tells her to shut up. She so stands up to Cal. One of the scenes that kind of made me tear up the first time when she says, I'd rather be his whore than your wife and then spits in his face. That was an actual, they, they used that line in Pike's Peak. Is that it? But um, Billy Zane had had that line said to him before. <laughs> no. <laughs> He's had that twice now. He's repeatedly being turned down by women. Poor guy. Did someone say it to him in Back to the Future? He's one of Biff's henchmen. <sighs> If not, we could go back and find out. We could fix it. We could do a Back to the Future 4 where Marty goes back into the first movie and adds that scene. Yeah, I just need a DeLorean and I'll make it happen. Okay, so let's mention, let's talk about a couple key moments here at the end of Titanic. And I will start right off the bat by mentioning the scene that always gets people. And this is the scene that always gets people to tear up. My wife says she almost can't watch it. I know it will not have moved you because you're a robot, but... The scene with the Irish mother and her two little babies, and they know they're going to drown, and the mom tells them a bedtime story, so at least they'll be asleep when they die. Isn't that sad? I don't know. You tell me, Joni. Is it sad? <laughs> well, 10-year-old Joni was, was too busy trying to physically, like, work up tears to <laughs> actually, like, honestly feel emotion. But it, it is sad when you think about all of these families who are trying to get to America and trying to fill out fill out these dreams and escape i mean early 1900s ireland was no picnic i mean granted early 1900s new york for the irish was no picnic either but it was an attempt to get this better life and it was it, yeah it is really really sad and that that one little moment is really quite sweet all right i i, I caught you in a moment of emotion i was that was a trap it will never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like my wife said, my my wife, obviously, you're a mom, you have kids. That's the scene that really gets moms. They know their kids are going to die. Sure. They're just trying to do something nice for them and put them to bed. And I have to give a little trivia here. The lady who plays that Irish mom, Jeanette Goldstein, one of the greatest chameleons I have ever seen in Hollywood. Now, you you may not know her other movies. Do you know all the other James Cameron, the action stuff he did? No, I don't. I'm actually like wanting to look her up now because I don't know that I'm familiar with her outside of this. Yeah, she's insane. She James Cameron did Aliens in like 1986-87 and yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the biggest badass in this movie is this Latina uh private Vasquez. She's like can hang with all the men. She's as tough as anybody. She's got a crew cut. That's the same actress. That's Jeanette Goldstein. No way. Where she plays Vasquez, the tough Latina, and then she plays the Irish mom in this one. And then in Terminator 2, she's John Connor's mother. She's the one who gets in, uh, infiltrated by the T1 or by the, the liquid metal Terminator, and she shoots the little blade out of her out of her mouth to, out of her hand to kill her husband. That's Jeanette Goldstein too. Whoa! And she's like John, uh, James Cameron's good luck charm, and she's like again one of the biggest chameleons I have ever seen in Hollywood. Wow, she's great. Holy cow, I had no idea. So today I got Joni to watch Aliens. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> So, okay, so we get oh, to... good for her. Yeah, so we get to the end here, and uh, some great lines, so many iconic moments and scenes and lines, and, like, I barely even had to research this movie today. I'm just going to do this off the top of my head. But there's so many great Dick Cal Hockley lines. The one that always jumps out at me is where 
you know, Rose says, you know, Jack's going to die. He's going to drown. And Cal says, you know, that drawing will be worth much more in the morning, <laughs> which is such a great villain line. I got to give him props for that one. It's a great one. I also find it terribly wonderful as just a metaphorical device. I mean, it it's a horrible character choice, but it works really well as a metaphor that he is just grasping on to his money and his jewels all the way to the end. I mean, the ship is sinking. Literally, he's not even off the ship yet. And all he cares about is that he gave his jacket with the heart of the ocean in it to Rose. Yeah. That even even as all of this is going on, all he cares about is his money. And I think that that's a pretty intriguing symbol. If Cal represents the 1%, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that was that's a lot of the the that led to a lot of the controversy at the time. A lot of people, you know, people were always just looking for reasons to hate Titanic. And this was one that came out like the Jack and Rose subplot doesn't need to be there. Why not just focus on the ship? Although you can counter that by saying, well, you need a first class and a steerage passenger so you can see the entire ship so they can merge with one another. Otherwise, you're not going to see everything. But the, the like the gunfight and the chase at the end where Cal is chasing them through the Titanic with a gun, trying to get the diamond while it's sinking. A lot of people always found flaws in that. Like, you don't need that. That's just making it an action movie. So, again, does Joni have thoughts on that? I, you have to play out your story to the end. Um, and you're totally right. The, the whole idea of having a, you know, a first class passenger, third class passenger, second, pla second class, first class, whatever, having that as a device in a Titanic story is extremely common. In fact, I looked up uh, fiction Titanic books because when this movie came out, I went through a phase of just Titanic obsession. Um, not so mainly because I couldn't see the movie, but then even after I saw the movie, just as the historical guru that I like to be read every book about Titanic I could get my hands on and almost every fiction book of Titanic you can find involves a story usually a romance between a character in one class and another even before the movie came out it's just what you do huh. when you're telling a story about Titanic if you want to see multiple perspectives so James Cameron did not invent that he totally didn't, um, or everybody else pilfered from him, because it works. If you're going to tell the full story of Titanic, you want to see these different kinds of lives. And so while, sure, that moment with him chasing after them with the gun while the ship is sinking, is it a little bit unnecessary? Well, maybe, but you have to finish telling the story, and you have to do it in a way that's visual. It's the same issue that you have at the end of the seventh Harry Potter movie, where in the book, when Voldemort kills or when Harry and Voldemort have their final fight, it's kind of boring. And um, the dialogue in the, in the book actually says that Voldemort, when he's killed falls with mundane finality, it uses the word mundane, but that's not cinematic at all. You have to have something visually stunning. Um, I think maybe this is the same choice that James Cameron made. Is it the perfect choice? Well, maybe not, but he had to do something. Yeah. It's funny that you say that, that that was my experience as well. I was not 10. I was in my mid twenties, but I saw this movie and I immediately went out and read every book I could, I could on Titanic because I was all of a sudden mm. fascinated by it. So, yeah, it's interesting how that affected us both. Although you talk about the dialogue and like things that maybe didn't need to be there or maybe James Cameron may not be the best at. Let's talk about the Rose and Jack stuff, because I know you have some thoughts on this one. <laughs> Uh, but go, before we talk about this, let me say, Joni sent me a spreadsheet of all the notes she had before this podcast, and like 50% of them were her mocking the Rose and Jack stuff over and over <laughs> again. So I know this is, has stuck in your craw a little over the years. Well, 
<laughs> yes, a little bit. But I, I'm the kind of person that when there's when there's a love story in a movie, I really like it to be earned. And so a lot of the stuff for me, maybe maybe I've got a little bit too much of that frozen queen Elsa thing going on. But a lot of the question I have about their relationship is, is it earned? The biggest question I have is at what point does Jack or does Rose look at Jack and think, yeah, you're not worth this. I should have stayed on the lifeboat mm -hmm. after she jumps off like and they're facing the water. Does the, is there a moment when she's hanging on to the edge of the ship that she thinks, oh, that was dumb. <laughs> I haven't known this guy that long. I could probably live and be OK. <laughs> like, Do they really love each other that much? Does that happen? But I was that cynical about Romeo and Juliet, too. So remember, he promised her a horse ride on Santa Monica. So maybe that was a big draw for her. Yeah, but she has the heart of the ocean in her pocket. I'm pretty sure she can buy herself a lot of pony rides. <laughs> no, you're ruining Titanic for me. Stop it. <laughs> I prefer to think that Rose was just so in love with Jack. She had to go underneath the boat and free him with her axe and walk through chest high water and be trapped behind gates. She needed to do it because, again, this is a Tinder date. They've known each other for almost 36 <laughs> hours at this point. But yeah, the, the Jack and Rose stuff. For people who don't know what we're talking about, one of the running jokes and tropes about Titanic is that for the last 45 minutes of the movie, most of the dialogue is, is Leonardo DiCaprio screaming, Rose, and Kate Winslet screaming, Jack, or some variant of that over and over again. And it gets very tiresome the more you listen for it. Yeah, Kate Winslet says Jack, I believe, 82 times in the movie, something like that. It's more than 80. Wow. <laughs> and so if you do the math and you start thinking, okay, 60 minutes times three is, what, 180? That means she's saying his name about every two minutes. <laughs> is that right? Is my math correct? <laughs> I think it is. That, that's even more often than Fabrizio says something stereotypically Italian. Oh, way more. Wow, that's way crazy. More. So... <laughs> Yeah, the Rose and Jack stuff is silly, and again, it's I consider it a minor part of the movie. I don't really care, because the movie, there's, there's other things happening in that scene other than Rose trying to find Jack. Sure. But that is the thing that people harp on, and a lot of the criticism you know, rests on that. But and I don't I mean, to me, that makes the movie more charming, just because it's kind of silly. But, you know, your mileage may vary, I guess. Sure. Well, and, and there, but the whole idea of a, of a rushed romance, I mean, yeah, you can harp on it, and it's not particularly accurate, but what movie in Hollywood doesn't have something to that effect because you don't want to show intense amounts of relationships after the romance is gone. That's not very interesting. Like you live that every day. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to show what people are living. You want to give them something ideal. And so if I, if I set my cynic aside, like, is it, is it a nice idea that you could find somebody in that short space of time that you would dedicate everything to even at the risk of your own life. Yeah, it's I mean, there's something really beautiful in that. Is it very accurate? Well, not for me. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. But it could be right for somebody. And if you set it aside and just let it be what it is, it, it you know, you can forgive it that because the rest of it is good enough that you can set that aside and just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, well said. I mean, that's kind of the argument. Is this movie the Jack and Rose story or is it the Titanic story? And that's the controversy that's kind of plagued it for years. My argument is it could be both and they exist perfectly fine together. But that's 
I, I do remember I used to work with a guy back in the 90s, and he, he just hated the Jack and Rose stuff. He's like, I want to see a movie about the Titanic. I don't care about these people. Why are they in this? So it's like there was always that, that what's the word, the misconception that this is just a romance movie and there's nothing else going on, but I don't know. Do what I, well, I would argue at that point, okay, then what's the other option? Because you need you need a storyline that's a through line if you don't want it to be a documentary. And at that point, you say, okay, if we're going to tell the whole story of the Titanic, then we need to be able to get between classes. Mm-hmm. And a logical way to do that is with some sort of relationship. And because Titanic is a dramatic event then you would want that relationship to mirror that drama. If it's a casual friendship, when the ship gets starts sinking, then the drama of the relationship wouldn't mirror the drama of the ship sinking. So you need something fiery to complement the ice. Wow, that was really corny, but it works, right? Like, <laughs> that's not totally unintelligent. Wow, that was that was your equivalent of Jack, Rose, Jack, Rose. No. Oh. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, I think my friend, I think the guy I worked with just wanted more Guggenheim. He wanted more hot Guggenheim action in the movie. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about one of the controversies here. And this is one that a lot of people might not know about is that, again, this movie was just a lightning rod for strong opinions, controversy, people that thought it was the most amazing thing ever, people that thought it was the worst thing ever. There was one lawsuit that came out of this movie. Do, do you know which one I'm talking about? Actually, I don't. Oh, good. The, it's not in the IMDb. I've slipped one past her here. Yeah. <laughs> this is the the guard on the, the deck of the ship as they're releasing people into the lifeboats. In the movie, he shoots somebody. And then he shoots himself out of, out of shame. And I believe yeah. his family had a problem with that, you know, understandably, because they said there's no evidence that the guards were shooting passengers and there's no evidence that he killed himself. And they demanded an apology. And I believe James Cameron had to publicly apologize and give them some monetary settlement because it was one of the one controversies here. He, he kind of took some liberties with that ending. Yeah, that makes it makes it works for the character. Um, if you're if you're calling it slightly fictional, but I could see how that would bother some people in an attempt, especially since so much of everything else he was doing was meant to be as accurate as he could make it. Taking very light liberties with all of these actual people. Um, I could see how that might bother the family a little, especially given that that is a pretty cowardly act for him to be shooting other people, much less himself. Yeah. So I could, I could, I could kind of see that for a real character. If you had done it with another character that wasn't real, maybe. And the thing, see, I don't know James Cameron. I've read a lot about him. He's my personal favorite director. I love everything he's ever done, including Avatar, which is the number one movie of all time, Joni. But oh, really? I hadn't heard. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, James Cameron is very much a stickler. He A lot of people don't like him. They don't like working with him. I know Kate Winslet in particular said he was very difficult and challenging to work with. Yeah, she almost quit. But he he, he cares. That's the thing with James Cameron that I think people misinterpret. They think he's this, you know, megalomaniac, you know, tyrant that just storms over people. But he just really cares about the details and about how things turn out. So I can imagine, even though he has a bad reputation... The fact that the guard's family yelled at him probably hurt him a lot because he's such a big proponent of accuracy and stuff. So I just want, I have some sympathy for Cameron that he put that in the movie and it was probably a mistake and he paid for it later. But I, I bet he probably felt terrible. Yeah, I'm sure he did. He, I mean, he's, he's not, and I could be wrong because I haven't studied as much on James Cameron as you have, but he doesn't strike me as the kind of person 
who is out for blood. He strikes me as the kind of person who just cares very deeply about what he does. And when you care very deeply about what you do, you're going to rub some people the wrong way because you're exacting. That's what happened with Steve Jobs. That's what happened with Walt Disney. You just rub people the wrong way. It happens. If you're a perfectionist, you're going to make enemies. That's just how it goes. Yep. All right. So a couple things here before we get to the very end. Uh, A couple shots that I wanted to point out that I always thought were especially beautiful. And this is something you brought up earlier, how beautiful this movie is. Just so many things about it are just amazing and the detail and just the cinematography. But maybe my favorite shot in the movie is, you know, the Titanic sinking and there's all this chaos and panic. And then the camera pulls way back into the faraway shot. And all you see is this tiny little Titanic in the middle of the biggest, blackest ocean ever. And there's nobody nearby. There's no lights, nothing, no moonlight, anything. All you see is this tiny little boat shooting up flares. And that's where you really realize the gravity of what that situation was. Mm. And that's the scene that I always love at the end here. Yeah, I like the shot that introduces Rose. Because, again, if you go back to the to the camera work of this movie, which is so great, um, the the camera starts on that bird's eye shot of her where you just see her hat as she's getting out and you see her glove and it's just very proper and very formal and snobby and then the camera just zooms or um doesn't zoom sorry it pans down um into this low angle shot so she starts out really small and then gets really big um it's a it's a great way to introduce your heroine to make her seem both small and huge at the same time which is how she feels mm-hmm. important but trapped it's great well, I'm glad you mentioned Rose feeling huge, because that sets right up into the last controversy of this movie. <laughs> Was she too big for the door? <laughs> so, the greatest transition ever. Thank you, Joni, for setting that up. I try. <laughs> for people who don't remember, I don't know how you wouldn't know Titanic, but the end of the movie is the boat sinks. Very iconic scene of just special effects, some of the most amazing technical special effects ever seen in a movie up to that point. Just, it was breathtaking if you saw it in a theater. To the point that they actually re-released Titanic about eight, nine years ago. They re-released it in theaters in 3D. And I like, I have to take my kids to see this. You, I, I want you to say you saw Titanic in the theater and we saw it in 3D and the ending is even more amazing. But then they all sink and we end up in the ocean with all these people in the cold water and there's a little floating platform. Some people call it a door. Some call it a headboard. I don't know if it's part of the fireplace, what it is. And... Only one person can fit on there, so Rose is up there surviving, and Jack is in the water, and Jack freezes to death. And this begs the question, Joni, you knew it was going to come up, could they have fit two people on that thing? Oh, they totally could have. In fact, they there was a there was a whole symposium or something about it where they presented all the possible ways that it could have worked to James Cameron, and he retroactively said, yeah, I probably could have made that smaller. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, they, so Rose killed Jack, basically. Yeah, there's that great moment that I'll never let go as she's prying his cold, dead hands away so she can go finally get in the lifeboat she jumped out of. Wow, you really were a heartless 10-year-old. I'm a heartless 32-year-old. <laughs> so, But yeah, that's it's been the running joke for years, and there were some mean jokes made in the 90s about you know Kate Winslet maybe being a little bigger than some actresses, and maybe a smaller actor could have fit up there but yeah it's when you watch when you look at the movie logistically you think two of them could have got up there and in fact not only could two of them have got up there they could have cuddled for body warmth which would have been even better 
Yeah, they could have. Yeah, they would have been fine. They wouldn't have even needed the lifeboat. They could have just stayed on this raft in the middle of the ocean forever and been fine. So maybe your theory is correct. She knew she had the diamond in her pocket and she was set for life. And this guy's just baggage at this point. Like he's a street urchin. He probably doesn't even have insurance. Oh, definitely. Like she's going to be supporting this guy. Yeah. So maybe maybe you're on the right track here. Maybe she wanted him to die. Yeah, as they're as the ship is going down and he's like, Yeah, it's gonna suck us under. She's like, Yeah, like someone else I know, and that's when she decides, Okay, it's time to it's time to scram. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, you're my greatest <laughs> guest ever for that analogy right there. Thank you. Happy to be of service. Jack's like, Yeah, we're gonna get sucked down. She's like, Yeah, you first, see ya. <laughs> One, two, three, not it. Yeah, don't let the ship hit you on the way down. So okay, well let's answer this question once and for all. What is that thing in the water that she's floating on? Everyone calls it a door, but I don't think it is when I look at it. You know, when I watched the movie again, I always imagined it as a door, but it's not. It's too intricately designed for that. Uh-huh. Um, I think it must have just been a piece of paneling from something. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I don't think it's a headboard and I don't think it's a door. I think it's just random wood. Huh. Interesting, because there's a couple scenes in the movie where old uh, Rose, Gloria Stewart, is looking back on footage of the Titanic, and she always fixates on the fireplace with the mantle over the fireplace. It very much looks like the do- the wood over one of those fireplaces. That's why I'm wondering if maybe she's, you're making the connection here that she remembers that's the type of wood that saved her. Huh. That would be kind of cool. Let's just pretend that's true. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's just pretend it is. Yeah, that was true. So that's what James Cameron intended. That's the fireplace. It's a whole little... Never mind. I don't know. (laughs) This is the end of the movie, and then Rose lives, and she becomes a famous actress in Santa Monica, and she uh, rides a horse, not side saddle. She rides it with one leg over either side. Very controversial. (laughs) And... This is where we get the other great question in this movie. And this one always comes up, and I have never seen an answer that satisfies me. Does old Rose die at the end of this movie? You know, they wanted it to be intentionally ambiguous. Uh-huh. Um, I, I actually, I kind of hope not, because I, I like the idea that it's a dream rather than reality. Because if it's reality, then she, then, then heaven is the Titanic. <laughs> And I don't think that she would have seen the Titanic as heaven. I think she would have seen it as hell. <laughs> I don't want Cal Hockley showing up in heaven. I don't think that's cool. Well, they, they made the conscious decision. I don't think he's not there because the the only people that are that are on the Titanic at the end are people who died when the ship went down. Hmm. But I don't like the idea of of Rose believing or ending up in this heaven that is this ship that is representing all of these horrible things in her own life, much less the world. So I'm going to say I vote dream. I vote dream. Well, you know, Joni, they did say it was the ship of dreams. Yeah, but it wasn't hers. (laughs) She says that. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's always been my interpretation. I never thought she dies at the end. And I have heard people flat out say, Oh, she dies at the end. It's obvious. I'm like, no, it's not obvious. Yeah, I just think she's at peace now. She has delivered the diamond back to Jack, and she's had a happy life. And I don't I don't personally think she dies, but there are people out there who are lunatics who will tell you she did die. So Joni and I are both on the opposite side of that, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I think I don't think she's dead. I think she's dreaming and then will go to actual heaven when she does die, not Titanic hell. <laughs> All right, so we've effectively gone through the whole movie, and again, just I have nothing bad to say about Titanic other than the things that suck about it, but other than that, it's fantastic. But I will say, 
Are you familiar with the uh, the Saturday Night Live sketch where they had they beat up the old lady at the end of Titanic? Oh my gosh, no! But I'm gonna have to be now. Uh, it was where uh, I think it was where Bill Paxton was hosting in the late '90s, and they had a sketch. It was where where uh, Sherry O'Terry was the old woman and she throws the heart of the ocean off until the end, over to the ocean. And then all the people on the crew find out and they get mad and they basically just pummel her. And so it's just, oh, it's no. just people punching an old woman as hard as they can for about three minutes and it's really funny. Oh, poor Gloria Stewart. Yeah, and then James Cameron comes on and says, you know, this was the original ending of Titanic and we just thought it would be really cool to see an old woman really get beat up. So, oh my gosh! That's our SNL tie-in of this episode. One of the long-lost Bill Paxton sketches. Oh man, and he's and now he's heartless. Yeah, he's out heartless to you. Yep, there it is. I feel better about myself now. There you go. I've taught you something. That's, that's what I want everybody to come out of staff picks is having learned a little bit, and you've taught me something, Joni, and I've taught you something. Well, that's good. I, I think what you taught me was very valuable. <laughs> yes. And you taught me about historical movies from 1944 that I've already forgotten the title of. <laughs> Meet Me in St. Louis. It has the greatest lines from Margaret O'Brien ever. You have to watch it. All right. Here's here's the deal. I'm going to watch Meet Me in St. Louis, and we'll come back and talk about it. And you're going to watch Avatar, which is the number one movie of all time, and gets even less respect than Titanic. <sighs> okay. And we'll come back. This is a trio of episodes we're now being planned. I'm just letting people know we're mar Joni's marking her territory here on these three movies. These she's got these three. Okay, deal. <laughs> okay. So, anything else you want to say about Titanic's legacy, respect, uh, last thoughts before we sign off here? I, I don't think so. I I just I think it's a in rewatching it, it really is better than than it's been given credit for as it's aged. I think it just, again, got so much overhype at the beginning that it's an easy movie to hate on. But when you watch it with that open mind and with your eyes open, even, I mean, just watch it on mute. If you don't like the dialogue, watch it on mute because it's so dang beautiful that it's, it's earned its place in cinematic history. Definitely. Now you use, you, I don't think you're not a teacher now, but you were a teacher for many years and you used movies in your classroom. Did you ever use Titanic as a lesson? Actually, yeah. When I taught The Great Gatsby, I would use the scene where they went to dinner uh, because it talked about old money versus new money, which is such a huge part of The Great Gatsby, uh, that it's it's a really good representation of, of how that functions. So I would show a lot of the scenes with Molly Brown, actually. Very good. Now, I guess this is where we end the podcast by answering the question that I wanted that I really started off with at the beginning. Is Titanic the worst best picture movie of all time? Because... It really was called that almost unanimously for a long time. And a lot of the criticism is backed off because people hate Crash more. <laughs> but <laughs> Titanic was the one that really raised the ire of people. I never understood why it got so much hate. Do you think it was a worthy Best Picture winner? What else was up that year? You're the one I hear typing on the Internet. You tell me. Yeah, I'm looking. Um, so it was the 98, right? 1998 Oscars. Goodwill Hunting in there maybe? Ooh, if Goodwill Hunting was in there, then that might be a tough one. Let me see. So best picture that year was Titanic, As Good As It Gets, The Full Monty, Goodwill Hunting, and LA Confidential. Um I think Goodwill Hunting could have given it a run for its money because I think Goodwill Hunting is also genius. Uh -huh. Uh, but in terms of overall power, I actually think Titanic was a good choice because it was so because to me, a, a best picture needs to be so much more than just a good script. Mm -hmm. 
And Goodwill Hunting had such a great script. And even though I will stand by it as a brilliant film, I think Titanic earned it that year. I'll get, I'll, I'll, I'll say that that was a good choice. Okay. Well, yeah. See, my argument is real, just a little simpler, is that Titanic is one of the biggest movie events of my lifetime. Like when I die one day, I'll be able to look back and say, wow, I lived through the Titanic phenomenon. That was like a big deal. And I place it on such a higher pedestal than most other movies. Like even if Goodwill Hunting is as good of a movie as Titanic, I would say Titanic was such a massive cultural event that was like the center of all pop culture in the world for a long time. I'm just really happy it got rewarded. That's what I would say. I'm really glad yeah. that we look back and say yeah, they were smart enough to award this one at the time. I think you could say the same thing about movies like The Return of the King. Mm -hmm. um, the Return of the King had a similar experience where at the Academy Awards, it was up against some great films. Uh, I'm actually looking them up right now, too. Hang on. So, so yeah, The Return of the King was up against some great films the year it won. It was up against um, Lost in Translation. It was up against Seabiscuit, Mystic River, Master and Commander. Again, like it was The Lord of the Rings is one of the biggest cinema accomplishments of our generation easily mm -hmm. and i think that honoring titanic honoring movies like return of the king was totally the smart choice because of not just what the film did but what it represents in our culture because so many best pictures are forgettable i mean do you remember mystic river no <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was up for best picture but i don't remember it yeah, that does lead me to the next question, is that since Titanic has lost the mantle of worst Best Picture winner ever, and now everyone says Crash is, I'm just curious, have you seen Crash, and what do you think of it? I haven't seen Crash. I personally love Crash. It's one that I want to do a staff picks on someday. I just don't feel as strongly about it as Titanic, so it hasn't happened yet. But it's, that's the one that everyone references now as being the worst Best Picture winner. Yeah, I would say La La Land, but I can't say La La Land. <laughs> All right. Again, I just want to thank you for joining me again. You're a guest I've wanted to have on for the longest time, and I just was looking for the perfect movie to unleash you onto my audience. And I'm glad that uh, people, you guys will notice, I let Joni do most of the talking in this podcast. I don't do that very much. There's only two co-hosts I think I've ever really done that for, and that's Joni here on Titanic and Brian Scully on Arlington Road. So I just uh, was very excited that you got to come on and talk, and I would, I'm looking forward to the other two podcasts we do in the future. <laughs> me too we'll see which one of our movies is better it'll be mine but you know <laughs> you do have no heart you're the tin man we've learned this yeah i'll maybe i'll find it after we've done our trilogy <laughs> okay and again my name is mario lanza this is staff picks if you need to reach me you can reach me at staff picks podcast at gmail.com or on twitter at mario j lanza until next time i'll be out there looking for more movies and i can make a case just need a little more love in the world like titanic which i cannot believe the world turned on it so hard please come back it's always been amazing and i'll talk to you guys later thanks for listening goodbye rose jack rose jack rose jack Rose Jack Rose Jack Rose Jack Rose Jack